Welcome to the Kingless Generation. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and this is a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I come to you late in the autumn here in Tokyo. The leaves have turned color. A lot of the ginkgo leaves have fallen off the ginkgo trees, and I hope you're doing well wherever you are. Uh, I have released, I know, a lot of collaborative episodes recently, and there's more on the way. There's more recorded. I have a load of those recorded, but I kind of feel like I'd rather not release those right away. Because, sure enough, I feel like I owe you a, a real sustained kind of episode, like we usually do around here. Uh, and for that, I have Thoreau Walden. Uh, a, le- a little red part of Walden that I think actually reveals something really interesting about his transcendentalism and his particular critique of class society. He has a critique, like a lot of American uh, writers at the time, you know. I mean, you could read this together with Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass as well, talking about America as this new kind of society. It's a whole new kind of revolutionary experiment. You know, you, he's ex- he's at least as excited as, you know, like... The, the most excited Maoist, the most committed Maoist about America just expanding on and on forever. It probably will encompass the whole globe, you know. He doesn't even, this is before the Civil War even, and, and new states keep coming into being again, again and again as we go. And, right? and, and Thoreau, too, has this kind of critique of feudalism and critique even of industrial society that... Is, is nevertheless part and parcel of settlerism. It's part and parcel of the American e- economy, uh, the particular type of capitalism as it was wed to slavery and to indigenous dispossession and constant expansion, right? I mean, there's this, these are characteristics of the Nazi government, the Nazi uh, economy as well, right? The economics of destruction is a good treatment of that. Uh, and it's how different is it really? You know, I keep coming down on that side of it, actually, personally. I sort of have a maybe I have a Zen uh, approach ultimately to the question of fascism. Like, what is fascism? Uh, it's kind of like, is it the sound of one hand clapping? I, does it even matter what it is, you know, at the end of the day? What is fascism? I, I will answer your question by taking off my shoes and putting them on my head and doing a dance. Uh, you know, it's like. That is the sound of the bourgeoisie adding value, uh, which the bourgeoisie never does. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I could come up with some kind of Zen koan, I feel, if I thought about it long enough. But uh, it's just like, maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, I know why it matters. Yes, it matters. But uh, at the same time, you know, as, as I was discussing in um, messages anyway with Prez, right? I don't think we really got to this on our show together, which is just as well, because I think this kind of thing, you know, they should give their take uh, in their, uh, on their platform, right? But there definitely is a way that, you know, the Holocaust memory, the way that it came together in the mainstream, right? As much as the Holocaust obviously uh, is a horrible thing, you know, the way that it came together in the 60s 
at that moment, right? Like this particular geopolitical moment in the Cold War as not, as fascism. That was part of fascism, right? I mean, people talk about how like the Holocaust memory industry ultimately serves certain purposes for the state of Israel and for its geopolitical goals in the Cold War. And that's true too. But then the flip side of that coin is also portraying Nazism as a particular kind of unparalleled uh, uh, abomination, just evil thing from the pit of hell, when in fact it actually is a very logical extension of a whole lot of different capitalist societies, including not least the United States and any other kind of Anglo settler colonies, right? I mean, it's, it's just the logic of settlerism imported into Europe for the first time, right? And there's a way in which, uh, you know, you can, uh, we, it, it is not, it's certainly true that the Holocaust is the only genocide of its kind, and there are many, uh, that we are like allowed to recognize in a, a mainstream kind of way, in a, in a capitalist uh, media scape, right? Uh, that is really interesting, bears thinking. And, and does, does that mean fascism? You know, like the, the definition of fascism as a whole separate thing obviously didn't start then. You know, it begins with Dimitrov and um, but yeah. Um, so I'm on I'm on both sides of that, I guess. I guess I can see like, you know, Dimitrov. Uh, Dimitrov, if anything, is more like fascism was an op. You know, he would he would uh, go very well with, say, uh, conjuring Hitler or who financed Hitler. Right. And uh, in which show kind of pretty methodically how Hitler was kind of an op of Anglo-American intelligence and so was Mussolini there's a there's an academic book uh, on that out now as well uh, showing how various American media barons were extremely uh, tireless in promoting him in America um, I'm reading now too a book about Ezra Pound it's amazing Ezra Pound was a full-on fascist and he was a super key person. I mean, there were a lot of these people. Uh, there's a book, um, Ezra Pound's Japan, which I'm really enjoying now. Uh, and he, you know, he was instrumental in getting something like haiku recognized as an important world poetic genre or whatever. And also the no theater, right? Uh, at exactly the same time at like, as like Kwakwakiwak who have a very similar kind of dance tradition and it has similar meanings, you know, it's associated with kind of secret society, feasting society, uh, rituals and, and ruling classes and, and, and so on, if you can call it a ruling class in that case. See, that's the thing. Uh, in that case, it's an economics that is fundamentally oriented toward redistribution and the denial of private property, right? I mean, it really is, you know, they're, they're collecting status, sure, and you can argue about whether uh, a s trans egalitarian society or a complex hunter-gatherer society where people are collecting status is truly uh, classless, but there's no material accumulation of surplus happening. And I don't think it's an accident at all that one of these traditions, right, the no theater, which is in Japan, which is a longtime feudal power and really arguably a capitalist society since the Edo period and the introduction of the money economy in the 17th century and consumer society in the cities, urban culture there. I mean, the largest city in the world by far was Edo in the 18th century. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, all of that private property, very much a thing there. And then they have this no theater and Ezra Pound is looking for something to make his ideas seem universal he has his ideas about chivalry and uh you know greatness of what they're really trying to do is find a europe that has no uh semitic contagion in it it has no jewish or muslim element even though of course europe is born uh from this total backwater of the islamic world from you know half of france and hungary even uh, many parts of Hungary were uh, Muslim cities. There were Muslim cities all in Hungary and stuff, right? And that's part of why they actually have like a pre-modern medical tradition, scientific tradition there as well. Uh, and uh, there's anti-Christian literature in Japan that I'm working on actually that mentions this. I found this. This is pretty. Don't tell anybody, but um, yeah. 
So uh, anyway, uh, the the all of that Semitic uh, heritage has to be denied by the Anglo, maybe Dutch. I don't know, but I definitely the uh, Ezra Pound, the Ezra Pounds of the world need a new sort of view of like chivalry. Usually, is what they're calling it, right? Chivalry, uh, the whatever it is that is the positive moral. Uh, you know, fiber of that justifies all the rapacious uh, accumulation of the capitalist ruling class, which, of course, it was getting hard to do, hard to justify that, right? So uh, Ezra Pound loves his no theater because he can say, hey, look, there's a totally unrelated society. It's not totally unrelated. It's in the you know, the Namban period in the, in the uh, late Middle Ages, there was all this contact directly with Spain and Portugal and Italy. And uh, there's all that, right? Like, that's a big part of, of I think, why they, there is an early modern uh, merchant capital society that grows there, right? Uh, same as, in, as with Spain, you know, not that Spain had it even first, right? Uh, the, the Europe is coming into being, right, at the same time as it, it sort of discovers... Uh, Japan and and the Americas and all kinds of other places too, of course. But now, uh, you know, Ezra Pound in the in the late nineteenth century, uh, going into the twentieth, uh, he needs uni- he needs to universalize his ideas uh, of this kind of chivalric strong uh, race that has the right to uh, run the East India Company and do all that sort of thing. Right. And Japan helps him to universalize it. He, it does that work of saying, you know, yes, this is uh, um, on the one hand, we, it needs to be super narrow. The, the, the culture that is best and that is, you know, must uh, give birth to the new humanity uh, of capitalism is northern European. It has a Protestant work ethic. Uh, it has. And yet somehow it, it miraculously has no Semitic heritage whatsoever. The Mediterranean is not there. No, you know, Mediterraneanless Europe is a big part of what you know the the pre-Raphaelites uh, in the art world are interested in as well, right? Pre-Raphaelite. The first time I heard that, that sounded so strange to me. Um, pre well, How do you pre? That means that they're like before somebody that hasn't even um, like we're the we're the group of artists that come before a guy who hasn't been born yet. There's going to be some some artist bef- you know coming. Um, it's like catacrestic uh, naming of your art movement. No, that's not actually what they meant, apparently. Uh, no, what they mean is like, uh, what we like is, we are the guys who like uh, the art before Raphael, because Raphael shows this new kind of um, age of exploration uh, style that is too tainted by Semitic influences, basically. We like the Gothic. Yeah, that's another big keyword for them. They like the Gothic. And Gothic is just a totally made-up culture. It turns out the more you read, the more you really look, um, the Gothic is whatever is not Mediterranean influenced, whatever is not Semitic influenced, you know, subtract everything uh, Muslim and Jewish and, uh, you know, Middle Eastern in any kind of way. Also or also Byzantine, right? Any kind of Byzantine Greek influence as well is totally tainted for them. Uh, one of their real artistic kind of fathers said, I finally visited St. Peter's and I expected to be unimpressed, but I found I was positively disgusted. I find Greek art to be positively heathenish. And, I, you know, I think this is the it's, it's about the Semitic influence. Right. It's about the Mediterranean. Right. And the the English kind of. Uh, right. Anglo-American. Right we're talking about pound he was born in fucking like montana or someplace i forget exactly maybe it's even like wyoming and uh goes to london and is hanging out in london and then of course he ends up in rome and he broadcasts on mussolini's radio program and then there's a weird post-war he gets like committed to an insane asylum by the allies for a long time and then he finally comes out and apparently Probably apparently because he had agreed to just live the rest of his life in quiet and not speak publicly much. All right. Very interesting. And I look forward to learning more. Right. Uh, but, you know, that's just one other sort of endpoint of of settlerism, I think. Right. I mean, you know, if you've read Hitler's American model, how much the Nuremberg laws were based on just American race law. 
right? You know, dispossession, racialized uh, differentials allowing for capital accumulation across those lines, yeah? This is what inequality does for capital. So, you know, it's a, there's a way to see that it as all one thing, right? Uh, on the one hand, maybe it's kind of an op. Maybe it's actually, you know, these forces of uh, finance and uh, big, big business, right, at the, at the top of things, uh, who, again, also can be traced in a lineage all the way back to, uh, as I have done, right, the Islamic picaresque. You can see how uh, under merchant capital there, uh, you have a certain class of people who start practicing all these various uh, special tricks that you can do. And those special tricks are the essence of modern capitalism. That is how you accumulate capital in the way that industrial societies really do. And the people who got that going were these, these shady networks of uh, English people, uh, primarily, who were investing in these ventures, right? But then on the other hand, you know, you have like Jay Sakai's uh, The Shock of Recognition. You also have Prabhat Patnaik. Uh, I'm reading right now a volume called Fascism, Essays on Europe and India, edited by Jairus Banerjee. And that's fascinating, taking you through fascism in India, right, as a mass movement, as a non-white, right, reactionary, revolutionary movement. And it doesn't have to be white. You might be surprised, right? And it can have a, this element of actual critique of feudalism and even of industrial capitalism, right? It has a critique, even if it does ultimately reinforce industrial capitalism and it is a core element of industrial capitalism, maybe all the way back, right? There has to always be, as Rosa Luxemburg points out, there always has to be some zone of primitive accumulation out on the periphery of any capitalist polity. Maybe there was from the beginning, right? But uh, also this, I mean, this contains as well fascism as a mass movement. One of the first statements of that is fascism as a mass movement by Arthur Rosenberg, who represents a kind of left wing of the SPD, right? The Socialist Party of Germany. And he was kicked out of there, you know, pushed out of there very quickly as they were really collaborating with the Nazis. And he ends up dying in obscurity in America, just gets a job there for a little while, but he was very sick and quickly dies. But this essay, Fascism as a Mass Movement, is a bit of a, a gem because it's a representation of that other side of the coin to Dimitrov, right? And I, I, I embrace both. I think fascism is an app and uh, is an op, an app. Um, many apps are also ops. Most apps are ops. Maybe all apps are ops. Uh, but he, uh, yeah, and on, but this is the other side of the coin where it has a grassroots, it at least is able to take hold in the grassroots. And that's what I want to get at today. There's a puzzle. There's a puzzle. You know, I was just talking to Shumanitu and, uh, you know, he, we were talking about, he just, he just reposted a uh, series on, on Kevin Costner, you know, into the Costner verse and so on. And, and there's a mystery there for me too. There's a, there's a, something I want to get at long term, uh, which is sort of how, how can, <laughs> is there, does everyone, is being, is communism just when everyone becomes indigenous again? Uh, I think maybe it, it is. I think maybe there's some aspect in which that's true on the, in the very, very long term, right? Uh, but how do we get, if not there, how do we get on the road to that without it being cringe and without uh, without actually being uh, reinforcing settlerism, actually? You know, there's like a huge part of settlerism that is about uh, being a pretendian, right? Pretending to be indigenous, right? In a certain sort of way. Yeah, because I was listening to the, the Costner verse, into the Costner verse series, and I was remembering actually bizarrely one of my f most favorite movies ever to the extent that i ever got into a movie was kevin costner's robin hood somehow when i was like 12 or 13 i just couldn't stop watching that i loved the story of him getting together with his friends building forts in the woods and taking on the the powers that be 
And I think that's a that, that that was a formative influence on like whatever my maybe my politics too, right? But I think for Costner that was inextricable from uh, a lot of you know settler shit. So that's interesting. But it did it inspired me to like get out with my friends and build forts in the woods, you know, and so on. I mean that itself is it's a kind of settler thing that you would build forts. That's what you do. You go out into the landscape and build forts. Isn't it interesting that children sort of think of that uh, as a thing to do? Um, but but that as well was a kind of like act that I was doing with friends of mine with whom I shared a sense that we were sort of not the popular kids in the school and so on. So we had quite a class consciousness, uh, which was really a class consciousness, actually. It really, that was the difference between us and them is that, you know, their parents were all sort of business people around the town, whereas our parents were not. You know, that's actually what, where those things come from, uh, I now realize. So, but there's a, yeah, as I'm saying, there's a mystery there because, you know, uh, there's a way in which that kind of critique can go right into settlerism, right into the particular kind of Anglo-American settler colony uh, populism, right? And that's what I want to get at today. So I'm looking at Thoreau. Uh, I'm looking at a Japanese sort of equivalent, one Japanese writer who was heavily influenced by uh, this kind of transcendentalist settlerism, uh, whose name is Kunikida Doppo. Kunikida Doppo, uh, who died of tuberculosis at, in his 30s, you know, so he doesn't live very long, but while he was around, he was a great example of a certain kind of very bourgeois, uh, like, you know, for, ang- anxious former samurai type uh, youth. Right. And, uh, you know, he's written he writes a couple of different stories that I'm going to dip into uh, about the romance of going to Hokkaido. And this is an expectation that the missionaries from America who were hired to, uh, you know, largely they would be hired to actually teach agricultural uh, science and colonial administration. That's actually what, you know, speaking of chivalry. Uh, do you think it's any accident? Why Why do you think, of all uh, books he could have written, why was it that Nitobe Inazo, a specialist in colonial administration, who first in Hokkaido, learning from an American, Oyatoi Gai Kokujin, uh, a foreign hired, foreigner hired to be a teacher, and then at Amherst, right, uh, he, he takes an American wife, um, who's white, obviously being American and being white are one and the same uh, at that time. And uh, he writes a book. Why would he write a book called Bushido about fucking samurai shit? Uh, you know, what does he know about that? What does he know about Bushido? Uh, his job, his, his first job is to go to Taiwan and uh, direct the colonial exploitation of Taiwan, Right. <laughs> so, but no, that's no accident at all because, of course, the justification for all that has to do with having a transcendent warrior code of some kind, right? Which uh, uh, Ezra Pound was already hard at work, you know, I think uh, d- defining that, those equivalences and, and it did a lot of work for people like Ezra Pound and it sure did a lot of work for uh, Japanese capitalists to be able to say that they had something like chivalry. But first, I want to take us back and go a little deeper into a moment in The Dawn of Everything early on where uh, not only does Steven Pinker get owned hard, but we also get to really visit sort of what uh, the the great truth that uh, the really good thing that Thoreau and other settler ideology is sort of taking and twisting and using, right? Uh, the real kernel of, of truth and goodness that is here and humanity that is here that shows us that, you know, we uh, as a species, right? Uh, trans-egalitarianism has been around maybe 50,000 years. Uh, clear class society comes into being maybe 10,000 years ago. And then we have merchant capital for maybe 5,000. And uh, then we have industrial capital for maybe 500 Right. And so all of this stuff, you know, we're on a we're on a huge tidal wave. We're riding a huge tidal wave. But there is a shore. There is a shore The the wave is not the only thing that there is. And there is such a thing as calm seas. 
And in fact, the majority of the time we had calm seas in, in our human relations. And we can get back there and we must get back there. So, uh, Pinker, uh, Stephen Pinker is, is raised as a supporter of the kind of Hobbesian view of human beings as inherently uh, greedy and rapacious and competitive, right? Um, so, insisting that all good things come only from Europe ensures one's work can be read as a retroactive apology for genocide since, apparently for Pinker, the enslavement, rape, mass murder, and destruction of whole civilizations visited on the rest of the world by European powers is just another example of humans comporting themselves as they always had. It was in no sense unusual. What was really significant, so this argument goes, is that it made possible the dissemination of what he takes to be, quote, purely European notions of freedom, equality before the law, and human rights to the survivors. <laughs> to the survivors of that. Whatever the unpleasantness of the past, Pinker assures us, there is every reason to be optimistic, indeed happy, about the overall path our species has taken. True, he does concede, there is scope for some serious tinkering in areas like poverty reduction, income inequality, or indeed peace and security. But on balance, and relative to the number of people living on Earth today, what we have now is a spectacular improvement on anything our species accomplished in its history so far. Unless you're black or live in Syria, for example. Modern life is, for Pinker, in almost every way superior to what came before, and here he does produce elaborate statistics which purport to show how every day, in every way, health, security, education, comfort, and by almost any other conceivable parameter, everything is actually getting better and better. It's hard to argue with the numbers, but as any statistician will tell you, Statistics are only as good as the premises on which they are based. Has, quote, Western civilization really made life better for everyone? This ultimately comes down to the question of how to measure human happiness, which is a notoriously difficult thing to do. About the only dependable way anyone has ever discovered to determine whether one way of living is really more satisfying, fulfilling, happy, or otherwise preferable to any other, is to allow people to fully experience both, give them a choice, then watch what they actually do. For instance, if Pinker is correct, then any sane person who had to choose between A, the violent chaos and abject poverty of the, quote, tribal stage in human development, and B, the relative security and prosperity of Western civilization, would not hesitate to leap for safety. But empirical data is available here, and it suggests something is very wrong with Pinker's conclusions. Over the past several centuries, there have been innumerable occasions when individuals found themselves in a position to make precisely this choice, and they almost never go the way Pinker would have predicted. Some have left us clear, rational explanations for why they made the choices they did. Let us consider the case of Helena Valero, a Brazilian woman born into a family of Spanish descent, whom Pinker mentions as a, quote, white girl, abducted by Yamo Yanomami in 1932, while traveling with her parents along the remote Rio Dimiti. So the Yanomami are precisely the, the uh, people that Pinker raises to, to show this is what human civilization is really like. You know, Hobbesians really like them as an example of, you know, violent, uh, whatever, uh, inequality that supposedly lies at the root of human nature. So, but for two decades, Valero lived with a series of Yanomami families, marrying twice and eventually achieving a position of some importance in her community. Pinker briefly cites the account Valero later gave of her own life, where she describes the brutality of a Yanomami raid. What he neglects to mention is that in 1956, she abandoned the Yanomami to seek her natal family and live again in, quote, Western civilization, only to find herself in a state of occasional hunger and constant dejection and loneliness. After a while, given the ability to make a fully informed decision, Helena Valero decided she preferred life among the Yanomami and returned to live with them. Her story is by no means unusual. The colonial history of North and South America is full of accounts of settlers captured or adopted by indigenous societies being given the choice of where they wished to stay and almost invariably choosing to stay with the latter. This even applied to abducted children 
confronted again with their biological parents, most would run back to their adoptive kin for protection. By contrast, Amerindians incorporated into European society by adoption or marriage, including those who, unlike the unfortunate Helena Valero, enjoyed considerable wealth and schooling, almost invariably did just the opposite, either escaping at the earliest opportunity or, having tried their best to adjust and ultimately failed, returning to indigenous society to live out their last days. And, yeah, and here we can think about the, the schools, right? Um, the forced so-called Indian schools where just loads of scores of, of bodies of children who were murdered there. You know, just death camps for children. They were forced into that. And did they, did they stay? Did they like it? Yeah, they wouldn't have had to force them so hard uh, if they did at all. Back to the Davids in The Dawn of Everything. Among the most eloquent commentaries on this whole phenomenon is to be found in a private letter written by Benjamin Franklin to a friend. Quote, when an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language and habituated to our customs, yet if he goes to see his relations and makes one Indian ramble with them, there is no persuading him ever to return. And that this is not natural merely as Indians, but as men, is plain from this, that when white persons of either sex have been taken prisoner young by the Indians and lived a while among them, Though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and the care and pains that are necessary to support it, and take the first opportunity of escaping again into the woods, from whence there is no reclaiming them. One instance I remember to have heard where the person was to be brought home to possess a good estate, but finding some care necessary to keep it together, he relinquished it to a younger brother, reserving to himself nothing but a gun and match coat with which he took his way again to the wilderness. Many who found themselves embroiled in such contests of civilization, if we may call them that, were able to offer clear reasons for their decisions to stay with their erstwhile captors. This is the Davids again. Some emphasized the virtues of freedom they found in Native American societies, including sexual freedom, but also freedom from the expectation of constant toil in pursuit of land and wealth. Others noted the, quote, Indians' reluctance ever to let anyone fall into a condition of poverty, hunger, or destitution. It was not so much that they feared poverty themselves, but rather that they found life infinitely more pleasant in a society where no one else was in a position of abject misery. Perhaps much as Oscar Wilde declared he was an advocate of socialism because he didn't like having to look at poor people or listen to their stories. For anyone who has grown up in a city full of rough sleepers and panhandlers, and that is unfortunately most of us, it is always a bit startling to discover there's nothing inevitable about any of this. So there is much in Walden that actually uh, reflects this as well, reflects this reality. He is drawing on also an idea of uh, our society is not superior to indigenous society. But he takes it in this direction of like, we are the true natives. We're actually going to create somehow the best human society. We white settlers and maybe other people, you know, with other skin colors and, and so on, will be able to share in that someday. I don't know if they're able, but most people are will, probably won't be able. He's, he's quite elitist, right? Uh, and the uh, Walden, right? It starts in this way. When I wrote the following pages, or rather the bulk of them, I lived alone in the woods a mile from any neighbor, in a house which I had built myself on the shore of Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, and earned my living by the labor of my hands only. I lived there two years and two months. At present, I am a sojourner in civilized life again. So it's very much like a kind of reality TV show. He's doing this challenge or whatever. There was a guy in a Japanese uh, game show that had to live off of uh, junk mail uh, contests only it's kind of like setting yourself a challenge like that in a way uh and uh, the historical evidence is that he was not super strict about this like it was it wasn't quite like his mom was bringing him a box lunch every day but like pretty close he was going into town all the time like he had lots of money he has lots of rich uh patrons of his literary work you know 
as he kind of says in this first section, like I'm writing for the people in town who ask me uh, about this this activity of mine, right? Um, I mean, of course, he, he acts like, oh, people are just asking me so much that I guess I just have to write this book about this, right? Well, I mean, he he said it. He set out to do this whole performance, I think, so that he could record it in the form of a book, surely. Um, he has an interesting way of triangulating what he wants to say. I would fain say something, not so much concerning the Chinese and Sandwich Islanders as you who read these pages, who are said to live in New England. So yeah, he does have a message for like his fellow settlers, basically. Uh, but he does have a kind of anthropological eye. And that's, what I think, what he means about Chinese and Sandwich Islanders. Uh, Sandwich Islanders being a name for Hawaiians, of course. Hawaiians being probably a, a representative in the public imagination of the time of a relatively classless society, right? I mean, they would be complex hunter-gatherers. So, you know, they'd be accumulating uh, status, if anything, you know, and not material surplus. But with his anthropological eye, he sort of turns that same eye back on his Massachusetts society uh, of settlers, right? Uh, in, this, in these kinds of words, right? Everywhere in shops, offices, and fields, the inhabitants have appeared to me to be doing penance in a thousand remarkable ways. What I have heard of Brahmins sitting exposed to four fires and looking in the face of the sun... Right, so there's this kind of humorous, uh, you know, anthropological sort of curio, curiosity sort of description of, uh, you know, I Indian ascetics doing, doing fantastical uh, uh, austerities, right? And that's, that would be thought particularly by a Protestant to be, to be silly, right? Um, Protestants particularly not believing in, in that sort of thing, right? It's more about just only faith, right? I think that's actually important in a certain way. Um, yeah, isn't that interesting? I, uh, I want to rethink Protestantism quite a bit. I think, um, is, it, is it Islam? Is Protestantism just Islam for uh, Northern Europeans? Uh, and although, but in Islam, there's all kinds of penance and there's all kinds of actual, uh, right? But, but sort of, it's, it's within certain limits, right? And it does uh, allow for um, tricksters and hucksters and, and all these different uh, Sufi prophets and sheikhs uh, teaching this and that without necessarily, you know, without too much standardization. And so you do get some who uh, clearly are rather dubious, right? And that would be why that recent translation of Al-Hariri's impostures into English is, uh, uses a Mark Twain voice for at least one chapter, right? So we're in a world kind of like that, actually, and I think there's something to what Thoreau is saying, right? But even these forms of conscious penance are hardly more incredible and astonishing, right, the ones that Indian Brahmins do or whatever, than the scenes which I daily witness. The twelve labors of Hercules were trifling in comparison, and so on, right? I see young men, my townsmen, whose misfortune it is to have inherited farms, houses, barns, cattle, and farming tools, for these are more easily acquired than got rid of. Absolutely. And the bank would always trick the settlers into going into quite a lot of debt to pay for these necessary tools to get started in their new life of freedom. Right? Freedom and equality on the frontier. Better if they had been born in the open pasture and suckled by a wolf that they might have seen with clearer eyes what field they were called to labor in. It's kind of called by the field of to the field of Jesus to, to work for the gospel. I'm not sure. Uh, who made them serfs of the soil? Why should they eat their 60 acres when man is condemned to eat only his peck of dirt? Why should they begin digging their graves as soon as they are born? They have got to live a man's life, pushing all these things before them and get on as well as they can. Right? They're creeping down the road of life, pushing before it a barn 75 feet by 40, right? The portionless who struggle with no such unnecessary inherited encumbrances find it labor enough to subdue and cultivate a few cubic feet of flesh. Right, well, that's, and, and there's something to that, right? The way that, even if the way that Thoreau couches it is, is pretty, uh, the terms he couches it in are rather idealistic, right? By a seeming fate, a seeming fate, right? It's not necessary, right? And, and people, 
uh, on in settler uh, America at this time could see this just as we saw with Ben Franklin. Right. They saw they were on literally this frontier between settler society and indigenous society. And that's why they could see. But men labor under a mistake. The better part of the man is soon plowed into the soil for compost. By a seeming fate, commonly called necessity, they are employed, as it says in an old book, laying up treasures with which moth and rust will corrupt and thieves break through and steal. Yeah, that's from Jesus, one of Jesus' parables, right? It is a fool's life, as they will find when they get to the end of it, if not before. Most men... Even in this comparatively free country, through mere ignorance and mistake, are so occupied with the factitious cares and superfluously coarse labors of life that its finer fruits cannot be plucked by them. The laboring man has not leisure for a true integrity day by day. He cannot afford to sustain the manliest relations to men. His labor would be depreciated in the market. We should feed and clothe him gratuitously sometimes and recruit him with our cordials before we judge of him. The finest qualities of our nature, like the bloom on fruits, can be preserved only by the most delicate handling. Yet we do not treat ourselves nor one another thus tenderly. So he does have a kind of recommendation for solidarity and human uh, kindness, right? Which is, is great, good enough, right? But now I want to skip to chapter 10, which is called Baker Farm. And it's here that we can see uh, some of the limitations of this solidarity that he recommends, right? And some of the limitations of his kind of liberal elitist perspective, right? I mean, he's ultimately uh, quite an idealist, as we can see. So, sometimes I rambled to Pine Grove, standing like temples or like fleets at sea full-rigged. Notice that he uses um, technological metaphors and, and really like, uh, well, temple. I mean, this is from feudal society. Uh, maybe we're thinking of uh, axial age religions, right? Um, priesthoods under the great uh, grain states of history. Let's think about the, the modes of production that are associated with that. Or like fleets at sea, full rigged. So now we're, th we're thinking of uh, trading ships. Now we're thinking of maritime capitalism. Yeah. With wavy boughs and rippling with light, so soft and green and shady that the druids would have forsaken their oaks to worship in them. The druids, okay, megalithic uh, trans-egalitarian societies that existed in across Europe, right? Um, a lot of uh, accumulation of elk and moose and, and lots of other uh, big game at the end of the last ice age, right? That's what we'd really be thinking about there, you know, and the sources of his metaphors. That's really interesting to think about. Uh, and w we can think about what it would mean to us from, from our uh, history of humanity that we are constructing here on this podcast, but then also what it would mean to him, right? Or to the cedar wood beyond Flint's pond, Flint's Pond, where the trees covered with hoary blueberries spring higher and higher are fit to stand before Valhalla. Okay, Norse mythology. That's interesting. And the creeping juniper covers the ground with wreaths full of fruit. Or to swamps where the usne, usnea lichen hangs in festoons from the white spruce trees and told toadstools round tables of the swamp gods cover the ground, right? So he's hearkening back to all kinds of polytheistic pasts for this. And that's part of his putting on a kind of pseudo-indigenous mask for us here. He's doing a little masquerade with that, right? That's part of what I want to think about, right? And there's a, a, a certain kind of hemlock, a more perfect hemlock than usual, standing like a pagoda in the midst of the woods. Okay, should we think of a Buddhist temple in Japan, sort of, right? And many others I could mention. These were the shrines I visited, both summer and winter. Right? I'm, I'm a virtuous pagan, sort of like half, half like Montaigne's cannibals, right? Montaigne's essay on the cannibals is, is one of the earliest expressions of sort of like, hey, you know, the indigenous people, they actually are living like, you know, all the things that we would admire in the ancient Greeks or whatever, you know? They have a lot of great uh, values, and, and maybe they're even better. 
right? He's one of the first voices that says that. And I think Thoreau has to have something like that in mind uh, as he is casting himself in this role. I'm a new indigenous person. I'm the new, right? And he's going to say that. Once it chanced that I stood in the very abutment of a rainbow's arch. Abutment of a rainbow's arch. So it's an ar- like an arch of a cathedral, right? I was standing in the abutment, but, he's in it, but it's a rainbow. It's not a building, right? Which filled the lower stratum of the atmosphere, tinging the grass and leaves around and dazzling me as if I looked through colored crystal. It was a lake of rainbow light in which for a short while I lived like a dolphin. I know some of my listeners will be thinking of, uh, uh, oh shit, who's the, the scientist that, John Lilly and Margaret Lovett, who um, sure did love it when uh, she was training dolphins to uh, be CIA agents and take LSD and uh, all of that stuff. Well, but it's actually interesting to realize that dolphins also are kind of symbol in European art during the Age of Exploration when dolphins are like this mythological creature that, you know, you just barely hear about if you're a, a landlubber. Right. I think that's what we're thinking of here. I lived like a dolphin. If it had lasted longer, it might have tinged my employments and life. As I walked on the railroad causeway, so he's on a railroad, actually. Wait a minute. It's not quite as natural as, as all that. I used to wonder at the halo of light around my shadow and would fain fancy myself one of the elect. One who visited me declared that the shadows of some Irishmen before him had no halo about them, that it was only natives that were so distinguished. And we're going to see here, he actually meets up with an Irishman who is uh, being allowed to stay in an old shack that someone else built a long time ago and that apparently Thoreau himself had, had visited before. But this Irishman becomes a symbol of sort of everything that's wrong with the old world. We pick the, the lowest uh, possible uh, s- status member of that old world, old feudal Europe, uh, and just blame him for the whole thing, uh, right? And uh, yeah, just sort of like make him a study in sort of all of the lack of virtue that everyone else must have. And this is the reason why everyone else can't do what I, Henry David Thoreau, am able to so freely do and become the real native, the true native, by just melting into the landscape at a moment's notice. So he's fishing, and then suddenly here comes a, a lot of rain, right? And uh, for some reason, he's not able to stand a little bit of rain. Uh, that's, that would sort of contradict his uh, claim to be totally at one with nature, I would think. But a shower which compelled me to stand half an hour under a pine, piling boughs over my head and wearing my handkerchief for a shed. Uh, and so I may, eventually he has to make haste for shelter to the nearest hut which stood half a mile from any road, but so much the nearer to the pond, and had long been uninhabited. But therein, as I found, dwelt now John Field, an Irishman, and his wife and several children, from the broad-faced boy who assisted his father at his work, and now came running by his side from the bog to escape the rain, to the wrinkled, sibyl-like, cone-headed infant that sat upon its father's knee, as in the palaces of nobles, and looked out from its home in the midst of wet and hunger, inquisitively upon the stranger, with the privilege of infancy, not knowing but it was the last of a noble line and the hope and sinecure of the world, instead of John Field's poor starving brat. Okay. Poor little... The, the infant, this is a beautiful thing about an infant, right? They don't know social, uh, they don't know the evils of society. But I don't know that Thoreau is completely uh, sympathetic to this infant either, right? Poor John Field's poor starveling brat. I had sat there many times of old before the ship was built that floated this family to America. So... This is a, uh, you can see there's a kind of zone where uh, property, private property is a bit unclear. Uh, And it seems that John Field actually, there are bogs here, which is interesting, uh, right? Like bogs are a a phenomenon in Ireland and and, and Britain, right? You you can see, uh, right, it's a fuel, right? You dig it up 
bit by bit, and you can burn this. Uh, it also preserves bog bodies, right? They dig up uh, bodies from the Iron Age, you know, 300 BCE or something. Uh, there will be human sacrifices, maybe, uh, people who died in, in all kinds of ways, but often sacrifices, right? Very well-fed, kind of noble-looking people are sacrificed maybe because they failed in some political struggle, perhaps, but you can see their bodies are preserved just just like the day they died, pretty much, right? Uh, through the, the chemical properties of the, the bog, and that the same reason why it can be burned as a fuel, much like a log, you know, a uh, bit of turf. But most of that is gone, right, in Ireland and Britain. Uh, one of the few islands where there still is turf, Isla, the, la the island of Isla, uh, that is a famous one for whiskey because, uh, you know, like half of the flavor in that whiskey comes from that water on that island that still has a lot of the flavor of the peat, right? These peat bogs. Uh, but apparently there were peat bogs in America too. And what better way to exploit those resources than to bring over an Irishman who's used to digging them in his native land, I suppose, and then he digs it there too. And he has, seems, a kind of feudal relationship with the landlord there. He's been set up in this shack, right? And Thoreau, seeing this, launches into a kind of real shitlib uh, lecture here for him. Do, 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 Lord, as I lay me down, I only hope that I'll still be around. Cause oh, I got so much more to do. I pray I'm here to see it through. So you can give me all you got, or you can throw it all at me. I'm never, ever, ever gonna stop till I'm free. You can give me all you got. You can throw it all at me. I'm never, ever, ever gonna stop till I'm free. I'm sticking to my guns. Till my work is done. I'm sticking to my guns. Till my work is done. I'm sticking to my guns. Friends, comrades, relatives, thank you for listening to the Kingless Generation podcast. This has been a preview of a premium episode, which, believe it or not, is about three times as long as this preview. So uh, if you'd like to hear the rest, head on down to patreon.com. Look for the Kingless Generation and become an anointed member. You can join the Discord and you get access to the whole back catalog. All right, take care. Have each other's backs out there.